And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Welcome, everyone. We are live from the bunker. Jason Hunt here in the studio. And we are a bit late because I hit one button and didn't hit the other button. And I'm sitting here talking to everybody and not not streaming live. So my apologies for that. We do appreciate all of you being here. If you are live with us, the comments on Facebook are active. The live chat is open over on YouTube. If you're not live, you can still leave a comment or you can send us an email live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom And if you prefer to listen to this as a podcast, if you're on the go and have all busy things to do, we are on a number of podcast players, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Double Twist, TuneIn, Pocket Casts. We are on uh, all of the social media, a lot of the social media, and and I subscribe to the uh, the notion of not putting our eggs all in one basket more than it is anything else. So if anything happens to one channel, we have other channels. But the best channel, and we're going to encourage people to do this a lot more this year, uh, is to sign up uh, for our newsletter, which is, uh, you can do that over at sci fi for mecom And we do have a link in all of the different show descriptions that we have down here on the videos. So uh, we're going to start making use of that a whole lot more this year. Uh, so uh, we do invite you to check that out. All right, so now I've got all that out of the way. We can actually get to the important stuff. With Ben Robinson from Eagle Moss is here this morning. Welcome, sir. Well, this afternoon now, I guess. How are yeah, you? Yeah, it's dark here. It's dark, <laughs> cold, wintry. It is cold here as well, but I'm glad we didn't get the snow they got down in Texas. I'll tell you that. So the, I guess there's a there's a couple of different things that we can be talking about today. But the main one there, you just had a book that just came out here, uh, a documentary uh, behind the scenes look at Star Trek Voyager, and I want to get into that first. But uh, but before I do that, I wanted to, by way of introduction. Uh, get to know you a little bit. Tell us about yourself, how you got involved in in Eagle Moss. Because Eagle Moss has been around for a long while. And I'm not sure that a whole lot of people are aware that there's a publishing yeah. side of this. Most people, when they hear Eagle Moss, they're thinking the little, the, the little models. Yeah, so, well, if they've got the little models that came with the magazine, um, okay. and that's, that's how, as a company, we started out. So... It doesn't work so much in the U.S., but in the rest of the world, um, we put stuff out with a magazine so that you could buy it from a newsstand, and it was a way of us getting into different kinds of retail outlets. So the idea here then of the of the publishing thing you know, with the books and the magazines—that's just an expansion on that, I would guess. How long has have have you been doing like the hardback books and the behind the scenes and 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 those kind of things? So we, I mean, I, I had written a few for other people. I wrote a couple of Haynes manuals. Um, 
that was the main thing that people probably know me for. We used to publish uh, the Star Trek magazine back around the turn of the century. We go so like for four years. It was like it was effectively like doing a book every month. It was uh, uh, you know big, 112, 116 pages a month. Um, so we we published for. Oh, I, well, I personally have been publishing for 23 years um, and writing about Star Trek. Um, and as a company, what we used to do way back when was basically you buy a massive book, but it came in 32-page installments. So you put them all together and you got a book at the end of it. Um, and that could be about, I don't know, classical music or art or knitting, you know, anyth- anything. That was the way we, we started out as a company. Uh, but, yeah, we so we started up the, the books program I guess two and a half years ago now. And it looks like you've already published a number of titles. I'm looking here. There's the, the Voyager, uh, the illustrated handbook, uh, which is, uh, had just come out. You've got the, the new one on Voyager, the behind the scenes, you've got, uh, Star Trek shipyard books. You've got technical manuals, uh, you've got <laughs> yeah, we're, quite we're, a bit of output for two and a half years worth of work. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, some of that work was, goes back, Back to the back to the day, um, to my my ancient past. I mean, we roughly publish five different types of book. So we do a line called Star Trek Shipyards, uh, which you can see on screen there. That's like the third one across, mm-hmm. uh, and that's I call that James fighting ships of Star Trek, basically. So that's <laughs> like a, an encyclopedia of Star Trek ships, and there are lots of different volumes for that. So there are two Starfleet volumes, a Federation volume, a Klingon volume, uh, Delta Quadrant volumes are on the way. They're coming out and then we'll deal with the Alpha Quadrant and how we deal with the Gamma Quadrant is a good question. Uh, so that, that's a kind of multi-book series. Um, and that's all renders of every ship that's ever appeared in Star Trek, often using the original models. Uh, then we have the Illustrated Handbook. So if you look, there's the, the Kirk one in the Right. In the second to the left on there. Um, and they're like technical moments. So we used to publish something called the Star Trek Fact Files way back in the day, which is full of illustrations. So these books are basically those illustrations. And there are they're all over the internet, but people have scanned them and cheated and stolen them from it. <laughs> um, but you'll find that that's everything you ever saw about the Enterprise illustrated. Um, and there are ones of those for... Uh, Kirk's Enterprise, well, Kirk and Pike's Enterprise, um, and for Voyager and Deep Space Nine is due out in February. Now, did you? Um, and there's did, a next gen one. And what, then we do books about the design process. So mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with how things came to be. And then we do, <laughs> do the cocktail book, uh, Star Trek cocktail book for Christmas, which seems to have gone down very well. Um, and a couple of other kind of novelty comedy books. Uh, we did one. My favourite one is Mr. Spock's Little Book of Mindfulness, which is kind of Vulcan life lessons, how yeah. to survive an illogical world. Became a little bit more relevant in the last ten days. Oh no kidding! Um, and then this one. This is the first of this, which we hope will be online, which are these big kind of coffee table overview books for different sci-fi series. I mean, the first ones. We don't just do Star Trek, but right. uh, you know, start with Star Trek. Start where you know best. Sure. And this first one here, Star Trek Voyager, a celebration. This is uh, just out, I think, last month, right? And yeah, it came out in November, um, just at the end of November. Um, yeah, and it's uh, very... Oh, yes, look, pages. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the context page is not that exciting, but I mean, it covers the entire history 
of Voyager as a TV show. So we did, I think, more than 30 new interviews. We talked to all of the principal cast, uh, apart from Jennifer Lee, who you know is in, is in yeah. the kind of uh, mind frame to give interviews these days. Um, and then we talked to each of the departments, and we focused in on a few of the kind of like highlights of like the title sequences, um, how big Voyager is, that kind of thing. So this is yeah, this one's from like we did a big, um, a lovely new interview with Kate Mulgrew. This is um, this is put the that kind together of stuff, with the right set to say as well. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff that you would expect to find back in the day in the pages of Starlog or Cinefantastique or Film Facts or something like that. Where was there any? Are you drawing for any inspiration on past publications? Because you know you had you had Franz Joseph's technical manual. You have <laughs> um, you know Sternbach and uh, you know Rick Sternbach and Michael Kuda who did their technical manual for the Next Generation. Have you talked to anybody who has done any of these things before to bring in some oh, of that material as well? Absolutely. I mean, I know I know all of those guys really well. I mean, I was a big fan of Cine Fantastique back in the day, and I'm still. Yeah, I'm good friends now. It's a, it's a proud thing. I'm now friends with Mark Hawk. Um, so I'm a you know I, I thought that was the best publication about science fiction that there's ever really been. Um, but what I think those things never had the opportunity to do was to sort of look at something kind of long form. Mm-hmm. So you know there would there would be great articles in Sydney Fantastic, but they would be based around interviews that were done at the end of each season. And nobody really had the kind of ability to look back over the whole thing and talk about how things evolved or how they changed, right. how important the show was. And I think also a bit of, um, you know, having a bit of time and distance um, helps you to see a show in a different light as well. Uh, the conversation that I had with Dave McDonald one time who was the uh, supervising editor for Starlog for a number of years he and I talked and and he had expressed some surprise you talk about long form articles and that kind of thing in this day and age of the internet uh, Dave seemed uh, he was surprised that nobody really was taking advantage of that where you have uh, a page on a website that's infinite scroll you can do an article that's as long as it needs to be and yet in this day and age it's all very much tiny chunks we're only going to read for like 20 seconds or, or 30 seconds and it really does almost seem counterintuitive now you go to the website to see something really really long so it's good to see that, that there are still publications that value more information and not less information. It was- yeah, well, that's me for sure. I'm a man who values more information. I mean, I think the internet, the internet does change the way we consume things for sure. I mean, I think it, it you know, I, if you're reading off a Kindle, that's one thing. But if you're reading off a normal computer screen, I think it's actually quite difficult to read for any length of time. Um, sure. You know, there's there are all these kind of physical reasons about how the way your eyes react to the light from the screen, and it's not the same as paper and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I mean, what the trick for me is when you do a coffee table book is that you don't want to, um, because it's a coffee table book, it's quite a big physical book. You don't want it to be something that people have to sit and read for hours. You know, if you wanted to do that, you just do like a paperback. Right. Um, but you want to make it do things that only really a book can do that you can't do on the internet. So I think 
you know, on the whole, if other people are like me, when you engage with a book, you do it in a more serious way, I think. I think, you know, I read the internet for information um, rather than for for sort of, I don't know, overview, long-form long thought. So, so let me ask you this, because there's been some discussion now that Fangoria has new owners, uh, mm. and it's been back in print the last uh, year or two, there has been some discussion as well about Gorezone and Starlog coming back in a digital form of some sort. Are, are we at a point now where the pendulum may be kind of swinging back to print more than than internet? Are we spending too much time online and maybe there's some value to getting the print magazines going again and, and doing even fanzines at, at some point? I Well, I, I've always been a big fan of printed things. I mean, it's you get a similar thing with the cinema, don't you? Where, you know, when TV came along, cinema had to find a new kind of way to be. Right. Uh, had to do something different. I think you see it now. I mean, all those superhero films were because TV couldn't afford that kind of budget. And now TV can afford that kind of budget. You know, I mean, there are uh, Marvel shows till the end of time now coming on Disney Plus <laughs> starting next week. Right. And Game of Thrones was as epic as anything you'd see in a cinema. So cinema's going to have to think again and to think about what can it give you that TV can't. And it's the same with a book or with a magazine. You have to give people something that's a bit different to what they would get online. No. Sometimes that is just physical pleasure. You know, there's, there's, I hope our books are really nice objects in themselves and they've got lovely pictures in that you want to be able to, to look at properly rather than just have scroll off the, you know, scroll off the screen after a second. Yeah. Um, and I think also it is the way you engage. I mean, I, I listen to podcasts, you know, I, I think that's something where you can have quite a long in, thought but I don't really read that kind of stuff online and I think that you know books and magazines can do that well and sci-fi snob in the chat agrees he says paper is much better than screens and I have a tendency to agree with that as well because I I am not a big fan especially given how my vision works I'm not a big fan of screens, even though I've got three of them here and I'm here all the time. <laughs> I know. But well, that's enough to make you not be a fan, isn't it? Right? It is. <laughs> it, and, I'm, and, I'm, and it's work. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing work 16, 20 hours a day, but I would love to be able to just sit down and read just for the pleasure of reading. And we've got a whole pile here for reviews, but I, I like to read just for the sake of reading. And I know Robert Meyer and Burnett, uh, has talked about this uh, this idea of physical media being just as important now, if not more so, than anything that's on digital. Because you get a digital subscription to something, whether it's a, a movie pass or a streaming service or Magic the Gathering, I mean, any, anything, World of Warcraft, video gaming accounts, anything like that. And s- something happens... And that gets, you know, if that account gets nuked in any way, what happens to the to the content that you've had all this access to all this time? Whereas you buy a book, you buy a magazine, you buy a DVD, you buy a compact disc, or a vinyl record or a, or a cassette, you have that still. I think there's something even more than just that kind of having access to the information. I think there's a, you know, we all want to make things real. Um, 
you know, I mean, we obviously, we sell a lot of model starships, you know, a lot of diecast chips or figurines. Right. And that to me is at least part of that is about people having the, the chance to take something that is virtual and fictional and make it physical so that you can actually have it, you know, you can have a, a model of the enterprise, um, you know, on your desk. Um, and these days, you know, the discovery, there is no physical model of the discovery. I mean, there is of the orbital, but there isn't of anything else, you know? So that, I think that, the most of us like to own stuff um we're from a you know capitalist um stuff owning society yeah um and I, yeah it certainly gives me pleasure i have a lot of books you know and i i enjoy them just having them well and and there's something about being able to turn the page i mean even with comic books going digital now there's there's a uh, a publisher an independent publisher called alterna comics that's gone back to printing on newsprint paper and you know it's that there's something about that tactile sensation especially that kind of paper it's not glossy it's not slick it's just like what we had when we were growing up as kids watching you know reading comic books uh although the printing process is better now but it's still there's still something about that nostalgia factor whether it's a coffee table book or a comic book or just you know a paperback you stick in your back pocket it is there do you see a time when people who spend way too much time on the internet are going to finally come around to the value of the, of the <laughs> no probably medium? not no um <laughs> but i think all of us you know there's no one thing yeah. that that should satisfy all of us you know if you're satisfied by one thing only then you're probably not um, indulging all of your senses as much as anything. You know, there's the smell, the feel of a book. Right. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, everything is, I think you're right. There is the, there is a, a pendulum swing, you know, that um, we probably go a bit too far with the internet and then we'll come back and go, actually, I really like having books. But books will change as well. You know, the, I mean, you know, there are some things that are better on the internet. So probably Wikipedia, you know, Wikipedia, much better on the internet than it would be in a book. Um, you know, that would be pretty hopeless. My parents still have their their set of encyclopedias on the shelf, and, and most of that information, I think, is still uh, valid. So, so, yeah, but know. do they consult it during dinner? Do they just go, let uh, me just go true. and look something up? I just mean, I'm sure that wasn't out there. Um, now, one thing, one thing that I've noticed, and and I looking, you know, we talk about social media, we talk about going online. I'm looking at your Twitter account, mm-hmm. and Eagle Moss has one. You've got one, and and I, and I've got to say, just at the risk of of stepping in it here, uh, I don't, I don't know that you're doing Twitter right um, because everything in your feed has to do with the products that Eagle Moss makes or reviews or, you know, links to photographs of people who get just, I, Ben, you're doing it wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe people wouldn't like to know me too much. Um, I mean, to be honest, the thing with um, Twitter was that we traditionally we operated in a very different way. So we used to, um, all our products used to be subscription only, and we didn't do enough in the way of just telling people about them. Yeah. Um, so I started doing it purely for that purpose, you know, um, and then we started to do it properly as a company. And I, you know, I, I now don't really do it enough for that purpose, and I don't, you know, have enough 
time to get on there and, and talk about the things that I, I personally like. Um, well, and I think there's some lessons to be learned from that because, the, you know, we see a number of times and especially, you know, with things being the way they are now, just how polarizing and us versus them social media has become. And I look at your feed and I'm like, I don't hate the guy. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, <laughs> I'm glad about that. Well, I, I mean, mean yeah, there is an element. I mean, yeah, it's like you, you know, when you go, when you represent a company and you're out there in social media and you're out there in the, in the, in the public eye, it's really hard to keep that separate. Yeah, yes. there are some people that don't keep it separate, but there are some people that that make the attempt to keep it separate, even though we associate you with a brand. How much of a challenge has it been? And and it looks like you've you've managed to do quite well, just focused on the the work. Hey, this is what's coming. Yeah, well, that and it is of course true that I am also a very boring person. That has not much of my life apart from work. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you certainly politics or something like that you're aware that if you come on and say something, some people might be offended yeah. by that. Um, and as a representative of the company, my view of the current president of America is utterly irrelevant to, um, you know, what how our die-cast ships look or what's coming up, which I figure is most of the reason that people come to follow you know, to me is they come for a practical reason rather than to uh, to hear my personal opinions. That, um, though, you know, fair enough. I mean, I agree with you. You know, yeah, people want to know you as a person too. Mm. Um, well, I'm here. You can see me for real. <laughs> and speaking of the diecast models, let's throw that up here for just a second here because you have a number of collections uh, of licensed stuff, licensed products, yes. you, know, you know, Ghostbusters, Marvel, Star Trek. I mean, you guys have been doing this for a while. Oh, yes. How how did Eagle Moss get started with the the diecast models? Because uh, this is you guys have been doing this for a while, but then I also see here some knitting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. You actually I mentioned that earlier, and it's not a joke. You guys are actually involved in some of that as well. So how did yeah. how did all of this get started? Well, way back in the day, the company would do anything that you could collect or learn. So. You know, we did literally do plenty of knitting, cooking. Um, and then about 23 years ago, I guess the Star Trek Fat Files was the first time anyone did it. We started to do stuff that was related to what I guess you would call genre products. So um, we did a massive build-up Star Trek encyclopedia. It was like one of those books I told you about. You bought 32 pages a week. Right. Um, and then Eagle Moss, I wasn't working for Eagle Moss at the time, I was working for a competitor company, which Eagle Moss ended up buying, started doing figurines. So they did Lord of the Rings figurines. Um, we did, I did a collection of James Bond cars. And then some of our competitors were doing things where you would build a, a model that it would take you a couple of years to build this model and you got parts every week. And they did things like um, sailing ships or, you know, the newest Ferrari or something like that. And we were the first people to come along and say, well, you could do this for entertainment properties. So um, I did the Goldfinger DB5, which I think, I mean, I think a couple of other people have done some entertainment properties now, but I did the Goldfinger DB5 and that worked really well. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things you find about cars is they're very nationalistic. People don't, uh, people don't like foreign cars. Um, and then we did the DeLorean, right. the, uh, the Back to the Future DeLorean, and that was, that's been a real 
real hit for us, a big success. And it's one of our most beautiful models. Um, and then from Ghostbusters, from Back to the Future, you kind of naturally get to Ghostbusters, um, which is what we've got. And now we've just put out a massive model of the Enterprise D as well. So, you know, it kind of all made sense at the time. Kind of makes sense to me. So when you say you did the the DB5, the James Bond yeah. model, what what actually were your responsibilities in bringing a model to the line? How, do, how does all of that work? So um, I'll give you, I mean, the DB5 is a little bit complicated because the original Goldfinger version of the car no longer exists. Um, they believe it or not, when they finished filming Goldfinger, they sent the car back to Aston Martin, who stripped all the gadgets out and tried to sell it to someone as a normal DB, as a norm, a normal DB5. Um, but um, so, if you take, I'll give you a good example: is the Back to the Future um, DeLorean. So on that, the company that makes the models is very good at going and finding a DeLorean and and scanning it and making sure that it was millimeter perfect and all of that. They have like one of those great big trucks where they drive the car on and they 3D scan it to get all the measurements perfect. Right. But what I had to do was to go and find the reference for what makes it the time machine rather than just a DeLorean. So I found a guy called Joe Walser, who is the world's expert on the, the DeLorean. Uh, and he had restored the original uh, movie car, which was in the, uh, uh, was, the time was at Universal uh, theme park. Uh, and he's now in the Peterson Museum. And Joe um, had all this reference about how he had made the, how he had, you know, reconstructed the car and restored it to the state it should be in. He built another one for a guy called Terry Metallus, who was actually the showrunner on Star Trek Picard now. Um, uh, so I went out to Terry's house and we looked over the car and found out exactly why it was the way it was and took loads of photographs and measurements and all of that and then sent that to the factory and then they replicated it as best they could and they make an incredibly expensive prototype one-off model that you go over and, and snag and comment on. Um, and we did the same thing with the, uh, the Ectomobile, the Ecto-1, Though in that case, that's just parked outside Dan Aykroyd's office on the uh, same lot. So that was a bit easier. So these are as screen accurate as you can get them then? Yeah. I mean, there are some cost, there are some cost considerations. There are some things that are just really difficult to do. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that's really interesting about those models, I mean, we've, we've just launched, we, it won't start shipping out until next month, we just launched the Enterprise D. And the Enterprise D, there were actually three different models. Uh, and the first two didn't have any room for 10 forward in it. <laughs> so they, uh, there literally wasn't enough room on the saucer for the, for the deck to be there. So they, when they built the forefoot model, they changed it to accommodate that. So each of those models is a little bit different. So you are having to look at it and sort of go, okay, well, I'm going to take this bit of detail from the forefoot and this from the six foot, um, you know, and the models get repainted. I mean, I'm very good friends with Dan Curry, who's one of the, the big VFX producer on Star Trek. And Dan said, oh, yeah, but you didn't put the coffee stain on the top where Gary put his coffee cup down. Um, but no, we get to that level. We try it. We, we almost put the coffee stain on. Well, and I noticed you, you mentioned on your on your Twitter account about this, the, the paint job uh, for the Aztec, because apparently on one of your prototypes, uh, 
it didn't go it didn't it didn't go right and you guys had to do a correction before it actually went to production how uh, well the issue with the aztec is that the the aztec is you can do an aztec and you can do the aztec <laughs> so the first time we did it we did an aztec and then i wanted to make sure that we actually did the the specific aztec pattern that was on the ship so to make even, you know, even the, the painting of the pattern that you're not supposed to be able to see right. um, as accurate as possible. So that one uh, has the previous version. I mean, uh, we're getting pretty, you know, you have to be pretty obsessive to to look at the difference in the Aztec pattern and say, oh, well, that's, right. you know, that, that pattern there is slightly off. It was a little bit darker in that area on screen or something like that. It's like uh, it's it's like Terry Farrell's twi- uh, trill patterns being different every single day, and if you don't you don't notice it unless you know it's it's happening. So, yeah, and, um, and one of the things in the Voyager book is uh, Mike Westmore um, painted or airbrushed Chakotay's tattoo on every every day that he worked, mm. and he did it freehand. He just you know he could just do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I think you know Mike Westmore's pretty good idea of what he was doing. Now I've been reading uh, Mark Cushman's uh, collection of books uh, called mm-hmm. These, "These Are the Voyages," and they're very detailed behind-the-scenes looks at uh, the original Star Trek and what became known as Phase Two that went into Star Trek: The Motion Picture. A lot of stuff that is heavily researched from both the Roddenberry archives, but a lot of interviews, a lot of uh, documents that they've gone through and sifted through and, and figured out, you know, put all these pieces together. How much, you mentioned the the interviews that you were doing for the Voyager book. What additional material, what other research was involved in putting something like this together? How detailed were you able to get? How in-depth is this book? It's pretty in-depth. Um, I mean, it's a different kind of book to those Cushman books. I mean, I one of the, the things about history is if you base your history exclusively on what was written down in the memos, I'm not sure that you get the full flavor of what it was actually like. Right. I'm sure that uh, accounts of the Trump White House would be very different based purely on the memos as opposed to uh, the experience of people who were there. What I tried to do was not to just do uh, a this happened, then that happened mm-hmm. kind of history, but to explain how and why things changed. So, you know, I would talk to an actor. So if I give you an example, a good example, um, talk to Kate Mulgrew. And Kate talks about what was her experience of coming into audition for Janeway. But she only knows that part of the story. But I also talked to Jerry Taylor, who was on the other side of the, the other side of the room, literally, right. uh, when Kate came into audition, and you know what she thought of how Janeway was going to be and how Kate changed that. Now you can't get that from memos, and to be honest, you can't really get it unless you talk to both those people close to one another. Right. You know, you can say, "Oh well, so and so said this to me. How would that feel for you?" So that's. That's, I think, is the big difference, is that we're trying to piece the story together rather than just what happened. Well, and not only that, I would imagine that there is some uh, some insights because 
uh, Kate Mulgrew was not the first Janeway. So you have that thrown into the mix as well. So, you know, Jerry Taylor may have a certain expectation, but now you add a new performer into the mix that brings a whole new perspective to it. And I, you know, and I, I would imagine those were some interesting conversations they had. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, that that's a good example of that where they, I think, to be honest, Jean-Pierre Bourgeois wasn't doing what they were looking for. Um, you know, she had a, a different take on how to approach the character. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just her that was uncomfortable and left after two days. Right. Um, you know, the production crew were kind of like, oh, I'm not sure this is the right way to do this, although she's a fantastic actress. Um, so, but, well, yeah, I talked to that. I talked to um, all the writers, really, about how they saw the characters and that interaction with seeing the actors bring them to life and how that then changes how you write the character. Um I'm trying to think of some other good examples. So, I mean, like Tom Paris, you know, Tom Paris meant meant to start off as this kind of dangerous rogue and then becomes more and more charming and more and more lovely and nice, basically because Robbie McNeil is like that. You know, from um, the very beginning, yeah. I don't think that I ever saw Tom Paris as a, as a dangerous anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, actually, funny enough, one of the producers, Ken Villa, said that. He said he was a dangerous rogue, not very dangerous. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're, you know, you start to to see some of the the tensions, not necessarily bad tensions, but the you know the different things they were trying to do. Because when they set Voyager up, they wanted to move it on a bit from where Next Gen had been, but not too much. Yeah. And that's that's the trick: is how much do you move it on? Do you you know do you go wild and crazy, um, or do you not go far enough? And that, that was always the challenge for them. And I think that comes through very clearly in the book, that they, you know, Michael Piller, who had a big hand in creating Voyager, one of the three co-creators, you know, really wanted Tom Paris to be a kind of Doug Ross kind of character from ER. Um, you know, someone who could behave quite badly, but who we would still love and invest in. Right. Um, and, you know, there were other people who didn't really see the character that way and didn't really know it. And if you talk to Robbie, he didn't, you know, I told him that. And he's like, oh, I wish they'd give me that as a note. That would have made me play it differently. Um, so you, you are able to, that, that kind of putting everything together is something that you can only do in a book like this, really, or in a series of conversations like this. Well, and I would imagine that Michael Pillar's death had a big impact on the direction of the show as well, because, you know... At, Michael had left a few years before. So okay. uh, Michael left at the end of the second season, and I think he was alive for another uh, seven or eight years. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, every, every now and again, I have to refresh my memory on the timeline because all of that happens all there at the same time because you've got... I know, the past is all simultaneous. I know, it? right? You've got DS9, yeah. you've got Voyager that are going on, you've got Dead Zone, all of these different things in, the, in, in that mix. Now, you mentioned tensions. Yes. Uh, how, how much in-depth... Are you able to go in this book regarding the rumored tensions between Kate Mulgrew and Jerry Ryan? Was that a was that actually an that's thing? that's an area that we we kind of didn't go into yeah. uh, in this book. I mean, there's stuff I can say about it, stuff I know, um, but it, well, the book is called Voyager: A Celebration. I remember talking to Brandon about it. <laughs> uh, Brandon Braga, who was one of the big producers, and he, right. 
we agreed that we would save it, save some stuff for another book called Voyage of the, the Misery. Um, <laughs> but it would be a much shorter book. Um, uh, that's, uh, there's something else that we're working on that might address that a little bit. Um, I think what I was most interested in is what ended up on screen. Sure. And I think that what you see is that the scenes between Janeway and Seven are some of the strongest scenes to ever appear on screen in Star Trek. Now, some of that came from Kate's lack of comfort with the amount of attention that Jerry was getting and why she was getting it. Yeah. Um, but I think you, you have... You know, Star Trek has a long history. I was, I, I was looking at some um, Shatner Nimoy stuff. And, you know, those guys ended up being the very best of friends for quite a long time. Perhaps not so much at the end. Um, but they, they really kind of upped one another, you know, and there was the whole thing of like, who's more popular, Spock or Kirk? And it caused, you know, it caused, that caused stress on the original series. Sure. But really what matters is the relationship between the characters. Now, uh, what about Janeway's obsession with coffee? Where did that come from? <laughs> it, came from it comes from Picard's obsession with tea. Oh, okay. It's how can we give her something that's the same but different? It's the story of Voyager. <laughs> now, the, the frequent complaint that I see with regard to, to Voyager is Harry Kim's lack of a promotion. Is, uh, well, it's frequent if you talk to Garrett. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's Garrett Wong's. Yeah, he's still upset about it. Well, uh, and it, we did talk about that in the book. It does sure. kind of make sense, though, that 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 question would be out there because you know you go seven years as an ensign. Something something's not quite right. Was this just an yeah. over an oversight for the writers? They just never thought about it, or well, they definitely thought about it because Garrett kept asking them why he had that promotion. <laughs> <laughs> um, We're not going to promote I, um, you. We're going to kill you off a couple of times and not promote you. No. I asked Brandon this exact question, and I was able to tell Garrett the answer, which is Brandon sort of shrugged and said, well, someone's going to be the answer. Um, I mean, I think from, from the writer's point of view, changing Harry's rank didn't change his function. Yeah. So he was the ops officer. Now, okay, he's the ensign, he's the young guy who's seen things for the first time. And obviously, you know, over seven years, it's, it, it gets, that changes. And I think that, that's also one of the, the, the things that happens while Voyager is on air, is when it starts, it, there's very little serialization. And you, the, you know, the directive coming from the studio and the network is, the, the characters can't change because most of the audience won't have seen the episodes that result in their change. And that's one of the things that's really, really changed about television now is that you can go and catch up. You know, if you turn up and suddenly someone's got a massive scar on their face or something like that, yeah. you don't just sort of think, why has he got a scar? Or if you do, you can go and watch the episode in which he gets scarred, you know. Um, and Voyager exists at that period in time where they didn't really want the characters to change too much. Yeah. You know, they wanted characters that could be restored to their initial state at the end of the episode. Well, and I think um, Harry Kim is a little bit of a victim of that. Yeah, and they, you know, that's the, the the nature of episodic television as opposed to the to the story arcs. Although 
you know, by the time we're into Deep Space Nine and Voyager, I think we started to see a little bit more of the serialized format, something that I think... Uh, I think I read somewhere uh, Ron, Ron Moore had talked about the fact that they really wanted to do it. And, no, it was on the um, it was on what we left behind the documentary, mm-hmm. talking about how Rick Berman was resistant to it until finally he just kind of gave in. He's like, okay, fine, whatever, and and that turned into some of the some of the best stories that we got out of Deep Space Nine was was in that serialized format. Absolutely. I mean, Ira, Ira is another good friend of mine. Ira, Ira was determined to to tell stories about how people were changed. Yeah. You know, um, and that, but that also goes to the difference between the two shows. You know that um, Deep Space Nine is in the same place. It, it you know, it's it's it stays still, um, whereas Voyager is always on the move and was much more episodic. You know, by by its very nature. You know, you move on. You li- you've left someone behind. You, de- you can't do stories with the Vidians anymore because they're 30,000 light years behind you, right. you know. Uh, whereas Deep Space Nine, it's like, well, what's going on on Major? You know, it's it's a question that you, you have to wonder about if you're in the same place. So out of all of the different franchises that are out there that Eagle Moss has not gotten involved in yet, you know, mm-hmm. you've got Star Trek, you've got Back to the Future Ghostbusters, is there is there one or two out there that you really would like to get your hands on that you haven't been able to yet? Well, there are increasingly few. Um, the we've got some new licenses coming, uh, so we just started work on the Expanse now, um, and I was thinking how much I was enjoying the season of the Expanse on Friday when I caught up with the latest episode. So I'm really pleased to be doing the Expanse. Uh, we're doing Stargate as well, which uh, I haven't gone back and rewatched. However many hundred episodes of Stargate there are. We but, just uh, we just finished a rewatch. I was introducing Mrs. Boss to it. We just finished season ten on SG One. So there you go. Yeah. That's a that's a commitment. I want I once watched all of the X Files in four weeks. Oh, I did it for work. We used to do DVD collections, and uh, I was like, right, I just have to watch all of it. Um, <laughs> I was averaging about five episodes a day, I think. Oh, wow. Um, but, I mean, the big one is obviously Star Wars, which, you know, it, it's been tied up with other companies for a long time, and I would love to, love to get my hands on that. Um, the other one that people always ask about is Babylon 5, mm-hmm. um, and the, the issue there is that Warner Brothers just aren't licensing it at the moment. They're, you know, they, they don't think there's, a, there's not... They need a program. Right. And us coming along and saying, "Oh, well, we can do some ships," isn't quite enough to persuade them. What about uh, what about anime stuff like uh, Star Blazers, Gatchaman, uh, you know, Battle of the Planets, uh, Robo- yeah. Robotech? Any, anything there that that you think might be in your wheelhouse? Well, certainly, everybody I talk to at the moment is working on the Netflix adaptation of Cowboy Bebop. Um, it's like every time I talk to them, they go, oh, "I'm just, I'm sorry, I can't put it in. I'm working on Cowboy Bebop." Um, so. I'm quite looking forward to that, and I'd like to see it. I, I was very impressed by the the Foundation trailer uh, for the Apple TV show. Um, you know, it, it feels like these things are they're more frequent than they were when I was growing up, for sure. You know, and when they they do exist, they quite often have ships and visual effects, and you know, lots of stuff that was 
a pipe dream for us back in the in the 70s and the 80s you know if even on next gen if you got a new ship it was a big deal very exciting right now you get a new fleet and you've got uh for for the star trek fleet you've got discovery season three i think is what's coming out now uh no so we've got uh we're just wrapping up on our first two seasons of discovery okay uh, and then we've got Picard ships coming out from April and we're working on the Discovery Season 3 ship. It takes us about a year to go from getting the models to getting them out in the market. Now, how much of a challenge is it for Discovery? Since you mentioned there's not a physical model, how, how much material do you have for reference on something like that? Oh, we have everything. I mean, we have absolutely everything. So we have the, the, the same models that they use to make the visual effects on the show. Um, and we use those as the basis for our models. So they are, they're as accurate as they possibly can be. There's no interpretation involved. Sometimes there are some, someone's coming to arrest them. Um, they're coming after you, Ben. You talk too much. Yeah, yeah. they won't have to try very hard. <laughs> you you, you, gave, away, right you gave away too much information there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we have the perfect reference. I mean, obviously on Discovery Season 3, the problem is that yeah. things aren't physically connected to one another, which is the challenge that we are addressing at the moment. Now, another challenge, uh, uh, Snob's asking in the chat, how, how could you do foundation? If you were to, if you were to look at foundation, for example, as a, as an IP to license, what mm -hmm. kind of things, what kind of discussion goes in when you guys are, are getting ready to pitch and say, we'd like to get the license to do X. What's your pitch for something like that? How do you put together a presentation and say, this is what we'd like to do. This is how we're going to do it. Well, it helps if you've done it before. You know, you can say, hey, you know, we did these ships for Alien. Um, here they are. I can send you some. It gives you an idea of what we do. Mm -hmm. How about it? Do you think this is something that you would be interested in for your series? Um, and, you know, if you make a nice product, and particularly if people are enthusiastic about it, um, you know, and I, I like to think that we make the best little model diecast ships that anybody's ever made. So, you know, for a licensor, it helps if you're coming to them and saying, hey, this is a really, this will be a really good product, as well as it will make you lots of money, which is obviously the thing that they really want to hear. <laughs> now, uh, I, I'm assuming that, you're, that your models are screen accurate enough that they can be used in fan film productions and, and various different things like that. Uh, yes. Are there, and I, I have yet, I've, I've only scratched the surface of what's out there now, but... Am I seeing some of these? Do some of these have lights or, or any of that? Or only, only the Enterprise D, the really big one. Okay, uh, that one is um, this big. You know, I mean that it's two. It's over two feet long. Um, so that that is a, a different beast altogether. That is a massive model. Um, that that can is big enough to accommodate lights. The others, I think, we've tried to while we're you know, very determined to have things at the highest possible quality and to be as screen accurate as possible. We've also tried to make our stuff as reasonably priced as possible. Ah, um, you know, and once you start putting lights in things and drilling holes and then having to have battery packs and all of that, you're pushing into a different kind of price bracket. I mean, if, you know, it's something that we do talk about and, you know, we're looking at maybe doing something in the future that's a bit more in that territory. But to be honest, it's 
you know, it, it would make for a more expensive product. So it's quite quite a long way from where we are now in terms of costs. Well, besides that, you have the the chess sets. Where how did mm-hmm. how did that how did that come about? Because hey, model ships and and chess, they're they're kind of similar, you know, figurines, I guess. But yeah, where what was the first chess set, and how many have you got? Uh, the chess set started off as how can you do a figurine collection? How can you do a second figurine collection? So how can you do a figurine collection is the same but different. So the first one uh, would have been Lord of the Rings. So we did, uh, I think, three Lord of the Rings chess sets. And then from there, we went to Marvel. There was, uh, that's just relaunching, actually. There's a Spider-Man one, an Avengers one, and an X-Men one for Marvel. And then for DC, there are two kind of Justice League ones and one Batman one. Mm. Um, And those, I think, I think those are all the sort of sci-fi genre superhero chess sets that we've done when you look when you look at everything that you guys have done um well was there was there a conscious decision to really put a lot of emphasis and effort into the genre ips because you know you've got the bond thing you've got the the knitting, you've got the Marvel stuff, but you know, you've also got this build your own Nissan type of thing. And, and there are things outside of the sci-fi fantasy horror sandbox that you guys do, but of by and large, a predominant amount of that is related to the genre. Was that something that everybody just kind of decided this is where we're going to make our money or is it just easier to get those licenses? Oh no, it's not easier. It's much harder. Um, it, it, what happened was that, as I say, the company used to be much more sort of uh, diverse, I suppose. You do lots of very different things. Um, you know, silicon baking, things like that. Um, but the, the, the area that we came to, to excel at, you know, we did better than our competitors, was the genre stuff. So, you know, the guys I work with, and, you know, I like to think myself as well, know an awful lot about the stuff we are you know we are passionate fans um who know the difference between spider-man costumes and iron man armor marks and all that kind of stuff let alone you know the different variants of a nebula class starship so you know it's that that became our kind of specialty as a company that we would we were putting out all these different products but those were the ones that were really sort of you know, hitting home with people. Yeah. And then we do more and more of us. We recruited people who are more and more in that vein. Um, you know, we have a very geeky office when we're all in the same place, which hasn't been for a while. Um, and we are all, you know, we are all passionate fans. Yeah. Does that sometimes get in the way though? Uh, because, you know, it's, you know, no, it has to be this way. No, it has to be this way. No, this is, can- this, you know, we have to adhere to canon. Well, no, canon is just a guideline. How, how much, because we see, you know, now, nowadays there's, there's a lot of criticism of shows like Picard and Discovery kind of going outside of what we normally would expect of Star Trek. And it's one of those where, you know, yes, you know, the people who are making these shows now, Doctor Who, Star Wars, you know, we're fans. We've been fans all this time. And then they're making stuff that doesn't 
necessarily appeal to all of the fans. So we're the question then is, how much does being a fan help you do the work? How much of it kind of gets in the way of doing the work? It, it does in all sorts of ways you might not expect. Um, I mean, we because we we make products, I think it makes it harder for you to, or you have to have some wisdom about following your own personal taste. So, you know, with Doctor Who, I was profoundly not interested in the Sylvester McCoy era when I was at university when it was on. Um, and I felt that was the wrong direction for Doctor Who. Um, but we, but I have people who work for me who grew up on Sylvester McCoy, Doctor Who, and are very excited to be able to do a cheetah person figurine. Whereas I'm like, yeah, okay, I guess. But, you know, you have to, to have a, a degree of professionalism where you have to say, you know, okay, this isn't my favourite bit of the franchise, but it is something that, um, you know, there are people who love and we, we would, you know, we will give it the same degree of love and attention ourselves. Um, when it comes to something like Star Trek, I think, you know, the reality of things being canon is if they're on screen, they're canon. Right. Um, and, you know, if you want to be really picky about it, go back to the original series of Star Trek, that means that Spock smokes. Um, or, or that Kirk's middle initial is R. Um, you know, these are all things that if you go through it frame by frame, you can find in the original Star Trek. Um, so, you know, you do have to remember it's a TV show no. <laughs> or a comic book. It's even worse if it's a comic book. Um, and then, you know, there are so many of these franchises where the, the timelines are so messed up that uh, continuity is a very... Uh, a very tricky and very tricky problem indeed. Right. All right. So Star Trek Voyager, a celebration is out now. What's coming out next? So out in February uh, is a Deep Space Nine illustrated handbook. Um, also actually just out, but we don't think we really told anybody about it. So we did a, a couple of fun books before Christmas. So we did Star Trek cocktail book, which we've actually just got a cocktail set out that goes with that. Uh, and we did Mr. Spock's Little Bit of Mindfulness, which I mentioned to you before, which is, as I said, one of my real favourites. I'm really fond of that product. And that, there are T-shirts and mugs that go with that. Uh, the Enterprise D, that great big model, starts shipping in February. Um, the first Picard ship, La La Serena, will be out in April. Um, oh, there's so much stuff. Um, Harry Potter knitting for those of you we do still do. You can see we managed to combine the two, knitting and genre stuff. You there can you knit go. your own Gryffindor scarf or Slytherin or whatever. Now are you going to get a? You got to do a fourth. If you're going to do that, you got to do a fourth Doctor scarf. No, yeah, well that's it's longer. Is that coming? It's a lot longer than yeah. the uh, than the Harry Potter <laughs> scarf. Um, and I think you know one of the things that is interesting for us is that there are products that work sort of goes back to what you were saying about books work selling to, to people like you and me, shall I say yeah. men of a certain age uh, <laughs> who grew up with these things, but we must never forget that there are, you know, in the UK, there are five or 6 million children who watch Dr. Who um, and, you know, and lots of families. So, you know, there are, uh, are things that you can make for those people that you hope will make them love love those shows in the same way that we do. Yeah. You don't want to make everything for 
middle-aged man. Not everything. <laughs> Not everything. <laughs> Just all right. Well, and the website where you can find all of this, eaglemoss.com, and they also have a, a presence on Twitter as well as other places, and I guess yeah, that would big, be the best Yeah, the big place is shop.eaglemoss.com where okay. you can see all of the products that way. Um, the site you were looking at there has a lot of the subscription products on, but if you go to the shop, then you, you can just buy individual. You know, you just want a Captain America. You just want a uh, USS Prometheus. You know, then you can just cherry pick what you want. All right, and we will put a link there, and uh, we will have you back when the, the next stuff comes out, hopefully. And uh, well, we're always happy to come. There's there. a lot. There is a lot coming. There is a lot more coming. Well, that's good to know. All right, <laughs> sure. Ben Robinson, thank you very much for your time today, sir. Thank you for having me. All right. And those of you who are here with us uh, live, don't forget, coming up tonight, we've got a new episode of the H2O podcast, number 252. I have no idea what we're going to be talking about yet, but that's coming up tonight, live at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then tomorrow, we mentioned Sci-Fi Snob is in the chat. Tomorrow, he will not be in the chat. He will actually be our guest, and we'll be talking about his YouTube channel and the different reviews that he does over there. So join us for that. And, of course, if you are here after we're live, don't forget you can leave a comment or send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi from you.com. And we do invite you to go over to our uh, newsletter sign-up and, uh, and get on that list as well. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you very much for joining us. If you are not subscribed, we do invite you to do that and have your notifications turned on. Because we have new programming drops here pretty much every day of the week. And we hope that it's something that you enjoy. So take a look around, see what you like. And hopefully there's not anything you don't like. All right, we'll be back tomorrow. Thanks very much for being here, folks. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2021 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.